0: Um, I think this is going to be a big growth area where we're going to see more community development, um, hopefully more um, emphasis on community organizations, more protection of community leaders and social leaders. And so um, I think that's going to hopefully have a lot of positive contributions um, to, uh, to peace and security.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. My name is Michelle Sicard, and I am joined today by my co-host, Nicole Rivas. Today, we will be discussing the ongoing violence and civil conflict in Colombia, a country that has been marked by growing tensions between guerrilla groups and the national government. Since the 2016 peace plan to ease such tensions and punish the extremist groups, there has been a rise in street protests, violence, and internally displaced individuals. In spite of this plan's implementation, how has the country managed to suffer from a combination of political polarization and civilian backlash? How have the early causes of this conflict reemerged and intensified within the past two years? Here to
2: answer these questions and more is Dr. Oliver Kaplan. Oliver Kaplan is an associate professor at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver, specializing in foreign policy analysis and human rights. Throughout his career, he has been named as a Jennings-Randolph Senior Fellow in the U.S. Institute of Peace and a postdoctoral research associate at both Princeton and Stanford University. He stands as the author of Resisting War, How Communities Protect Themselves, an analysis on how civilian communities mobilize and protect themselves during wartime violence.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Kaplan, for joining us today.
0: My pleasure to be with you.
1: So to start, could you explain the origins of civil conflict in Colombia? Who are the parties involved and how did they come into their political ideologies?
0: Yes. Well, the Colombian conflict in some ways, you know, goes, goes back to the founding of the country um, from the colonial period to the um, post-colonial uh, period of statehood when uh, there were sort of different cleavages among different political parties and factions, sort of more liberal, more conservative parties that have played out in different periods um, in the 1800s through the early 1900s, a series of different conflicts. Um, and then the, the most recent iteration of conflict really kind of traces its roots back to uh, a previous conflict that um, occurred in the 1940s and 1950s, which was simply kind of known as the The violence, or la violencia, because it was so violent, and this was uh, an an, um, interpartisan conflict between parties uh, that kind of devolved into banditry in the countryside and sort of uh, different types of uh, factions and groups competing with each other, and that kind of set the stage for um, the insurgencies that we saw in the second half of the the twentieth century, which some of which are still active. To today, and so um, that uh, period of of extreme violence in the nineteen fifties left left some uh, leftist uh, uh, groups feeling uh, excluded from politics in the country. And so, in the uh, mid nineteen sixties, and specifically nineteen sixty four, you saw the founding of the. Uh, the, the the first really large rebel group, the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, and then shortly thereafter the uh, the other large group, which is uh, still active today, the the ELN, the National uh, Liberation Army, and so those were really the two largest insurgent groups uh, in Colombia. Over the over the past fifty years, um, the FARC being more of a, a socialist group, the ELN finding some roots in, uh, in in inspiration in the Cuban Revolution, as well as as well as uh, Catholic ideology, and specifically uh, liberation theology. So having some um, origins there. There are also some smaller uh, insurgent groups as well. The the EPL, the Popular Liberation Army, um, which had more of a, a Maoist uh, orientation and its traditions. And then uh, another group that's kind of come into back into uh, the the public discourse today with the election of the, the newest uh, president, Gustavo Petro, is uh, M19, or, or as they call it in Colombia, just MA. Um And that group was founded um, in response to uh, perceptions of fraudulent presidential elections um, of April 19th, um, 1970. So M M19 is really the mo- the movement of the 19th or April 19th of that date, um, and so uh, those two latter groups, the smaller groups, the EPL and the M19, they demobilized uh, in the early 90s um, and contributed to uh, a reform of the Colombian Constitution, and so that's why you see, for example, uh, Gustavo Petro, who was a demobilized member of the M19, now coming to the to the presidency and so just to set the stage a little more um just for for people who may not be as familiar with the colombian conflict the, those aren't the only actors that uh have had important roles to play of course there's the the government or the state forces involved both uh, military uh, branches as well as the police forces and these uh these actors were you know clearly uh playing counterinsurgent roles combating the uh, insurgent groups from the you know 70s, 80s on through today, um, and uh, the you know these armed forces in some ways were um, largely responsible for providing security in some regions of the country, but also um, were um, accused of and, and uh, committed acts of of uh, torture, violence against the population in different moments. Most recently, uh, there was a um, um, sorry. Uh, most so, and most recently, there was the false positive scandal, or the falsos positivos scandal, where the uh, military was uh, uh, involved in taking uh, poor uh, youths from uh, either the the town, the major cities, or the countryside, dressing them up as rebel fighters, and then um, killing them to show that they were um, increasing their their kill counts of insurgent groups, and so this is. Uh, all, all, coming out now under the transitional justice process in very public form. Then, in addition to the the state forces, uh, there's uh, there's been a historically large paramilitary movement, uh, which consolidated under the banner of the United Self-Defense. So- which consolidated under the United Self Defense Forces of Colombia, uh, the AUC by its initials, in 1997, and this was the the largest kind of uh, network or confederation of uh, paramilitary groups throughout the country, uh, largely aligned with the government forces um, involved in in beating back the uh, guerrilla groups such as the FARC or the ELN. So today, there are some successors to these paramilitary groups. The AUC large uh, demobilized from 2004 to 2006, but shortly thereafter, there were um, some new groups that emerged that were sort of the remnants of those groups. Today, those groups are called largely under the the term the the Bacrim by the government or the criminal bands, bandas criminales. Although, even though the name would suggest they're criminal, they still have uh, quite. Um, you know, uh, I'd say, a, a, a paramilitary, uh, somewhat uh, right-wing uh, bent to them in addition to their the criminal activities they're involved in. The largest uh, group that um, we see in the press the most these days is the group known as the AGC, which uh, stands for the Gaitanista Self-Defense Group, um, which uh, is active especially in the northwest of the country. They're also referred to as the Clan del Golfo or the Urabeños. And this group, um, you know, is one of the largest groups, probably upwards of 4,000 members today. And they were just in the news because the leader was uh, captured by Colombian military forces in the fall. So his name was Otoniel. And he was actually just uh, extradited to the U.S. on drug trafficking charges. So all that is to say, you know, if you ask any Colombian about Armed conflict. They'll say it's extremely complicated, um, and you can see you can see why. Um, there's so many different groups with different ideologies and different approaches. Um, they demobilize and they and they evolve. So, so that's some of the background on the conflict.
1: Great. Now, could you outline um, the the established agreement in 2016 between groups such as the FARC and the national government? And has this changed much since?
0: Yeah. So in 2016, there was really this this monumental, historic peace agreement, which was only be- between the Colombian government and the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. And uh, this this agreement took, you know, well over four years to negotiate. The final agreement. Um, is really impressive in terms of length. It's like over 300 pages. So it's very detailed, almost in somewhat, some might say too detailed uh, for sort of the lay person to get through. But there are a lot of summaries and a, and a lot of um, good information available about it if you're interested in finding out more. But in short, this agreement uh, really encompassed six key areas or points of negotiation. So six key points of the negotiation agenda. Um, the first one, I'll just I'll just run through these really briefly. The first one, being uh, rural rural reform, which really included things like land titling, so expanding access to land, as well as rural development, so investing in the countryside, uh, building up public goods. Um, the rural reform in itself it really is more about land titling and giving people legal. Um, Rights to their land, as opposed to expropriation and taking over land, um, and so that's not that's not really the way the way it's happening. But this was really a key element of the FARC's uh, interest and sort of political agenda, and so it was, it was uh, one of the most important uh, points to to agree to. But beyond that, there's um, a number of other points. One of the other major ones is political participation. And this really plays out in in two major ways. One is increasing opportunities for excluded populations to participate in politics, to have greater roles, Um, and then in addition to that, um, creating a a mechanism or process for uh, demobilized members of the FARC who would who would later lay down their arms to form a political party and have political rights and access so there were some initial um, seats in the Senate set aside for them um, and other mechanisms for them to participate to form a political party so they did form a political party it was first called the the FARC uh, party um, so using the same initials as the armed group and later um, it was renamed as the uh, Communist Party. So, in addition to that, there was a, a key negotiation over a third point about uh, the process of ceasing fire and laying down arms and um, what would happen to the fighters as they reintegrate. So, the interesting thing about this point is that in the negotiation, there were some kind of discussions about uh, um, the political sensitivity of different. Um, terms and way of describing what's what's happening, and so the FARC themselves, they didn't want to um, have the agreement um, portray them as a surrendering, and so it's not called you know demobilization um, of their movement. Instead, it's, they use the term "dejación de armas" or the laying down of arms. So they're simply laying down weapons, but the sort of political struggle for the the ideals and causes that they believed in um, would continue. Then the, a fourth point is the issue of drugs and how to deal with um, uh, drug trafficking in the in the countryside and drug cultivation um, and what the what the government would do uh, to to deal with that. Um, a fifth point would be um, issues related to victims of the conflict, and here um, really there were kind of two main mechanisms. Well, I'd say three main mechanisms created. One is the um, the truth commission or the the Comisión de la Verdad. Um, This uh, organization has been working for the past three or so years and they're actually about to launch their final report coming up on June 28th. So it's a very exciting moment to see uh, what their analysis will look like. I think they're going to be releasing several... Pieces of it over the next few months, but starting in here in the, at the end of June, and then in addition to that, there's the special a jurisdiction for peace, um, which is known as the Hep, in in Spanish J E P Hep, and this is really a, a tribunal to investigate uh, crimes. And so one of the key issues of the agreement was whether or not members of the FARC would be punished. And so um, essentially, the the agreement arranged that the part the, the FARC would get. Uh, alternative uh, sentences if they were forthright and confessed to the different uh, crimes and acts and atrocities that they committed so if they did that they would they wouldn't have to necessarily go to, to prison they would have alternative sentences of home arrest or um, community uh, community labor things like that and so this process is playing out right now um, in terms of the Especially the issue of um, the kidnappings conducted by the FARC. So the FARC are um, involved in hearings right now and um, admitting to those to those types of crimes. Um, the the third thing I was going to mention, which is sort of partly for the for victims here, and it's it's partly an issue of political participation, is that there were also some seats in Congress set aside for victims. And so um, those seats were just elected after a delay. Um, earlier this year in the in the uh, congressional elections and so those uh, members will be taking their seats shortly for the first time to represent the interests of victims uh, in congress and then the, finally there were a lot of issues around the implementation and verification of the a peace agreement and its implementation. So how would it be monitored? How would demobilization occur? What kind of security would be provided for ex-combatants? And so you can see that the, you know each of those topics, I gave you a brief overview, but there's a lot more detail and process. Um, and so uh, one just sort of final comment to make about where we are in terms of the, the peace process, you know, um, a lot of people will refer to this current period as uh, post-agreement or post-peace agreement, but not necessarily post-conflict because this agreement was with one major party to the armed conflict, uh, that being the FARC, but there are other armed groups that remain and other issues of conflict that, that are continuing.
1: Now, following the disarmament of the Colum- Colombian guerrilla groups in 2017 under United Nations supervision. How did these guerrilla groups continue to mobilize, and what kind of impact has that had on the stability of the Colombian government and the Colombian people?
0: Yeah, so really good question. In this case, it was really only the FARC guerrilla group that demobilized, so just one one guerrilla group. And um, you know, just to, to be sure, um, the the uh, demobilization or the sort of leaving of arms of of this group was very significant um, around. Thirteen thousand um, members of this group uh, essentially laid down their arms or stopped fighting, um, joining this process of what they call reincorporation um, to rejoin society. And uh, this has been very significant. Most of these um, these former now former combatants have really abided by the the peace agreement. A lot of them are, they're they're referred to as the signers of the peace agreement because each of these individuals committed to it. Um, and so um, this has been significant. It's it's led to, to um, at least some degree of a, a reduction in in violence and in combat, and, and that needs to be to be recognized. That in that sense, um, most of these members have been um, complying with their sort of uh, commitments in terms of the the peace agreement. But at the same time, uh, conflict has continued. So uh, there's sort of different. Um, Different membership of the the FARC that um, is continuing with belligerent activities, and there's sort of one of them is the the um, dissidents. So uh, these are the sort of members that uh, never laid down their their arms. Then there's there sort of the rearmed members, the the rearmados, people who maybe initially agreed to the agreement and then then rearmed. They're just sort of individual recidivists. And then in terms of the FARC, they're you know, other people who were previously not involved with the FARC who were who have since been recruited um, to join the the group. Um, it's not clear exactly how many fighters there are in arms at this point. Um, it's somewhere maybe between two and, and four thousand. It's not it's not exactly clear based on based on the estimates. But you know, there's in, in some regions a, um, a substantial number of those uh, those groups are active. Um, and so then. There's some other groups that are continuing to to operate and actually a really good resource to document the sort of existing um, nature of the armed conflict in Colombia is the uh, annual report of the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC, um, that, that talks about a number of the uh, continuing groups and conflicts, um, either groups fighting amongst each other or groups fighting with the... the Armed forces of Colombia, the government forces, but um, so they're they you know they they're the ELN um, group that's still active, um, and so that group um, has moved in to retake some of the the territory that the FARC fighters left when they um, demobilized, put down their weapons, and so that's created some additional conflict as the ELN. Uh, has been fighting with some of the kind of neo-paramilitary Bakrime groups, such as the the AGC, the Gaitanista group, um, and so that's been generating, you know, more conflict as the FARC either also rearms or tries to reassert itself. That's been generating um, additional conflict as well, and one of the biggest issues. Uh, we see is the killing of social leaders and human rights defenders. So, um, these kind of social activists, in some ways, incentivized to uh, fight for their rights um, in the wake of the peace agreement. So, the peace agreement kind of elaborated all these rights for these people um, to get land, to get other development benefits, and, um, and in the process of competing for for power, um, a number of these different armed groups have um, targeted and assassinated. Uh, a large number of of activists, so this has been a a very difficult issue um, over the past five years since the peace agreement.
2: Right, and so in the context of this continued uh, guerrilla activity and and conflict, um, could you explain how this relates to the current issue of thousands becoming internally displaced in the country, and perhaps what regions and populations are the most affected?
0: Yes so Colombia has had really high levels of uh, forced displacement uh, over the years um, both people who have left the country as refugees or exiles as well as internally displaced populations or IDPs um, one you know one estimate is that up historically sort of upwards of seven million uh, people were uh, forcibly displaced and maybe even more and I think the kind of Shocking thing and troubling thing about the peace agreement is that I think it created this expectation that you know the conflict would stop, conflict processes would stop, there would be less victimization, less forced displacement, and the fact that some of these uh, trends are still continuing I think is, is is tragic and it's also very difficult for us to get our to get our heads around and it's kind of it's kind of shock, shocking. It makes us think that maybe the the agreement itself isn't um, isn't isn't having a positive impact. I think there there are some a, a number of benefits from the peace agreement, and yet at the same time there are still these troubling patterns of conflict that are occurring. And so I think the um, most recent numbers are that even in this past year, somewhere around 150,000 Colombians have been uh, displaced. And you know you ask the question like, why is this the case if we're in a kind of post peace agreement uh, period? But uh, a number of these uh, Kind of targetings of social leaders and forced displacement have happened in a number of key regions in the country, including in the the Pacific region where um, a lot of the Afro Colombian population lives, in the the Department of Arauca where the ELN is still very present, um, in the northeast of the country on the border of Venezuela, um, relatedly just north of Arauca and the region of Catatumbo, also on the border with. Venezuela, where the ELN and other groups have uh, active presence. And then in other areas, sort of the Bajo Cauca area, which is sort of the north uh, northwest area um, between Medellin and the Caribbean coast, there's sort of an area up there that where the AGC um, paramilitary Bakrim group has a lot of presence, and they're um, fighting for, for control with the ELN, for example, and, and among other uh, actors. In Putumayo, in the south, uh, there's been you know reports of a, a recent report of a massacre that made a lot of headlines. Um, and then I'd say, you know, uh, really kind of just a few months ago, um, before the for the election, there was a big armed strike or what was called the paro Armado by the AGC groups in the Caribbean coast of the country, where they basically uh, tried to shut down um, activity. You know, commercial activity, um, road road travel, uh, for a very large region of the country, in part as a protest of the extradition of their captured leader, Otoniel. So, as you can see, you know, it continues to be to be complicated. Um, You know, things are better Um, overall. Rates are down. uh, Rates of violence are down, but uh, continues to be um, you know uh, a slew of of conflict issues that um, that. Uh, the Colombians will will continue to have to to deal with.
1: Now, looking back on this negative civilian response and tragic trends that you just mentioned after the 2016 plan, is there anything you believe must change in order to create a more proactive plan that responds to the citizens' needs?
0: So this is a you know kind of a burning question. You know what can be done to support and rescue the peace process and have a you know a broader more comprehensive peace in, in the country, and you know I think the the outgoing government of Ivan Duque uh, has received a lot of criticism for not fully implementing uh, the terms of the agreement that his, his predecessor uh, Juan Manuel Santos uh, agreed to when he negotiated and signed the agreement with the FARC. And so, um, some of the things have been implemented better than others, such as. Uh, the reincorporation of the the combat the far combatants that's been um, seen as relatively successful. Some of the investment in the countryside has been successful, but there are a number of issues that uh, are outstanding and, and need a lot more support. Um, in some sense, the election of Gustavo Petro and Francia Márquez as as vice president uh, and really could save the the peace agreement because they're they're more committed to it. So I think there's some hope that. That that peace process will be rescued, and I can say more about that. But I think you know, right now, just concretely in terms of what can be done, there's this uh, process of uh, a development program for the for the the regions, the rural territories, called the PADET, um, or the the uh, development program with a, a territorial focus. In, in English, is sort of the the acronym, and um, this this process has gone slowly but had you know had some start uh, some, a, some somewhat of a decent start um, and yet the some of the criticisms that I've seen in some of my research and in others who are studying these issues is that um, while they're trying to provide public goods and investment for small communities uh, they could do a lot better in terms of including the members the residents of these communities in the discussions and the implementation in the entire Process of designing development projects and programs, and so I think um, an increase in in inclusion and participation um, will make these projects more uh, effective. Um, I think the uh, release of the Truth Commission report will be very important. Although Colombia, like the U.S. and many other societies, is highly polarized, and so you know I think some people will um, be very supportive of that report. Other people may be detractors or Dismissive of it, so um, that you know I think socializing that report, um, building on whatever recommendations come out of that report to promote further reconciliation and and work toward this sort of idea of never again nunca mas um, is really important. And then you know I would say sort of just building on my my own research, I published a book resisting war, um, how communities protect themselves. In, uh it came out in English in 2017 it came out in recently in Spanish in, in 2020 and I think it has a really important um, impl- implication for uh inclusion of citizens um, and uh, community-based responses to the armed conflict and to violence and that's that uh you know in a lot of ways in Colombia and other countries people are kind of waiting for politicians to solve problems or waiting for the right president or the right leader to come in and uh, make things right, um, to implement policy, et cetera. And I think the, impl- implement, imp- the implication of my research is that really, you know, citizens can't and shouldn't wait for that. They have a lot of power in their own hands to organize peacefully, nonviolently, to promote peace at the local level, to promote pro peace norms, to develop. Um, local procedures and institutions to uh, reduce violence, to protect populations from armed groups. and I think the, the government uh, of Colombia, as well as international partners, have some really important roles to play to build up local institutions, um, such as what are called the Juntas de Acción Comunal, or the, the Community Action Boards that are present in many villages. Uh, The Afro-Colombian have their uh, own version of a community organization known as the Consejos Comunitarios. Uh, The indigenous groups have their cabildos. These kinds of organizations across the country play really important roles for local peace implementation and also just uh, ensuring you know nonviolent protection and security at the local level. And so I think these you know these groups, you know there's really a window to invest in and support these groups so that um, you know at the at the very local level, the peace is is uh, is being put into place.
2: yeah, so you so you talk a lot about um, or you mention a lot of these projects towards peace and reconciliation. Um, and overall, you you mentioned that violence, the rate of violence has gone down overall. But could you explain a little bit why, um, talk a little bit about why there's been, there's been a rise in anti-government demonstrations in the past year or so?
0: Yeah. I mean, the the, the question of government demonstrations is a little uh, confusing to think about. There are, I think, a number of, of factors behind them. I think, you know, across the world, it's been a very difficult uh, period with the pandemic, um, first of all, and so I think you know we've seen you know protests related to that in, in the U.S. As, as well as in in Colombia, and it's sort of uh, been fuel for the for the fire for other kind of underlying social issues. Um, the most recent wave of protests that we saw really about a year ago um, in Colombia in twenty twenty one were about a tax reform law that that was proposed by President Ivan Duque um, to try to make up. Um, revenue gaps for the the government's national budget, um, and yet the the design of these uh, reforms were were seen as very um, uh, regressive and un, and unequal, and and placing the largest burden of payment on some of the the sort of poorest members, the poorest sectors of society, as opposed to the wealthier sectors of society, and that sort of on top of um, you know people losing their jobs, um, losing other forms of, of income during the pandemic was sort of just too much. It was sort of like the straw that that broke the camel's back. And so um, I think people sort of felt that the Duque government wasn't listening for a long time. They weren't implementing the peace agreement. They weren't doing a good job of protecting social leaders. And then they were trying to push through this um, regressive tax law, and that was just sort of too much. And so um, that was sort of the, the initial... Um, issue that drove these large-scale protests. Um, there are also sort of other protests related to lack of development in the countryside and things like that. But once these once these protests got going, uh, there was sort of a fair amount of repression that played out on, on national TV. And in particular, uh, there's a, uh, a unit of the, the police called the ESMAD. It's as acronym in Spanish as the ESMAD, which is the uh, Esquadron Mobile de Antidisturbios or the Mobile Antidisturbances Squadron. And this uh unit um as well as some of the military forces who were called in to control the, the protests, uh, used a lot in some cases a lot of excessive force and in a sense that kind of generated even more um frustration and more unrest as people um you know saw that kind of injustice play out, and so that kind of added more fuel to the fire so it's pretty much a um a, a tricky issue um it's not clear you know what will happen now with the new government coming in i think that's sort of a question to play out of whether um the petro government can can solve some of these social issues and maybe address some of the demands that that motivated the the protests
1: so overall you place an emphasis on the national bureaucracy in colombia and as you mentioned um colombia has recently named Former guerrilla leader Gustavo Petro as their newly elected president. How can we anticipate the conflict to be impacted with this change of leadership?
0: So this is a really interesting question, and I think one that um, Colombians and analysts um, are just beginning to to grapple with. Um, I think you know there was sort of uncertainty about whether. Petro uh, would be able to win, and now that he's won, um, it's sort of uh, playing out this kind of counterfactual: like, well, what would happen if Colombia not only had a leftist leader, but a leader who was formerly a member of an armed group, and how would this um, shape a whole host of issues, including you know rural development, but also approaches to the conflict, to security, to to the peace process, and you know, I'm not. I'm not totally sure how this is going to play out, but I think uh, there are a few different issues that are going to, um, you know, be kind of renegotiated, or we're going to see how how they're going to change. And I think a first really interesting one is how is this um, more leftist leader, uh, leader um, from a former uh, armed group, going to manage uh, and interact with the military? So this topic of civil military relations, you know, um, the the state forces in Colombia still play an important role in guaranteeing security. And, you know, there are questions like, is Petro um, going to authorize uh, military operations? For example, in the past, there have been a number of operations authorized to, um, to target the leaders of different um, insurgent groups, um, to, you know, conduct different bombings on their camps, those kinds of things. Um, you know, how is the military going to respond to Petro? What kind of approach? Approach is going is Petra going to take in terms of uh, ordering military operations? Um, you know, I think uh, you know. Obviously, we prefer not to have wide scale military operations, and yet the fact is there are you know armed groups out there committing atrocities still, and so there's a question of how, um, if at all, there's going to be a military response to those issues. Um, and then related to, or sort of separate from that is uh, the question of uh, rural development and community-based development and community-based approaches to promoting peace and security. And I think the platform of of Petron Marquez is very strongly focused on rural development. Francia Marquez herself is a um, a community leader, uh, origins as a human rights defender, um, advocating for environmental rights for her community. And so um, I think this is going to be a big growth area where we're going to see more community development, um, hopefully more um, emphasis on community organizations, more protection of community leaders and social leaders. And so um, I think that's going to you know, hopefully have a lot of positive contributions um, to, uh, to peace and security. Um, there's another question about... The change in approach uh, towards the issues of drugs and drug trafficking, drug cultivation, um, drug cultivation went down for a bit around the period of the agreement, but has since spiked up to extremely high levels. And so, uh, it looks like Petro is likely going to advocate um, more of a, tr- a crop substitution and development approach to dealing with uh, the issue of, of drug cultivation and sort of related issues of. Of poverty um, sort of one of the motivations why campesinos or farmers will cultivate drugs is because it, it, it fetches a high price and so it looks like you know those kinds of alternative development approaches will be embraced over uh, for example um, procedures of forced eradication by armed forces or you know, aerial spraying of um, of things like glyphosate that uh, that are used to um, eliminate crops and then and I think a last issue that hasn't really been talked about much yet, but is what's going to happen with the uh, paramilitary groups, the neo-paramilitary groups, the BACRIM, such as the AGC, the Gaitanistas, mm-hmm. um, and other groups. Um, there's some other groups still out, out there, such, such as the Aguilas Negras, the Black Eagles, among others. And um, It's not clear how these groups are going to respond to you know, more robust implementation of the peace agreement. Um, the fact that a leftist uh, leader is in power, you know, that might motivate them to carry out even more attacks against um, social leaders or against government forces. Um, so it's not really clear how that's going to to play out. Um, there is a policy in place to try to demobilize some of these remaining armed groups, um, and so, but that's that's a really a key kind of uh, question that um, that I think we're going to have to watch uh, in terms of how, how the conflict in Colombia evolves.
1: Lastly, what steps, um, circling back to the 2016 peace agreement that we've been discussing, do you believe would better implement this plan or increase the efficiency of this plan? And do you see it happening um, under the new administration?
0: So, yeah, this is, you know, again, you know, we're sort of in between in this... Um, Twilight Zone between presidencies so it's not really clear yet what's going to happen when the Petro government comes into office on August 7th uh, but there's there's sort of a lot of hopes that um, a change in approach might be productive um, he's committed to implementing the uh, peace agreement with the FARC and as we just you know talked about um, a lot of uh, observers feel like the previous government did a, a largely incomplete Job of implementing those terms, and so the the hope is that um, the kind of additional terms that haven't been implemented um, will continue to be implemented. So the the peace agreement really has a life of fifteen years, and so we're sort of a third of the way in. And so the next four years uh, will be a really important moment for make or break of uh, of the peace agreement. And so there's a lot of hope that that the, the incoming government will take that seriously and and recommit. Sorry, someone's hammering stuff next door to me. Um, no worries. I'll just uh, – one other one. one other uh, issue that's uh, come up in terms of uh, Gustavo Petro's statements is that he's uh, interested in reopening negotiations with the ELN. Um, at the end of the government of Juan Manuel Santos, there was an effort to um, also attempt some negotiations with the ELN when Ivan Duque – was elected that um, that largely fell apart, and so um, there's you know a very interesting prospect of of possibly negotiating a demobilization now of the, the kind of second largest or the largest uh, remaining insurgent uh, group, um, and so I think this is really interesting. The ELN has sort of suggested they're they're going to be open to dialogue, and I think that um, you know this uh, is promising, perhaps both because. I think Petro will take on a different approach to negotiation, being more open to negotiation. And it's also possible that, you know, given that he's a leftist um, and also a former insurgent, it might sort of make a, uh, negotiations more um, more palatable. It might make a deal easier to reach because he's perhaps maybe closer ideologically and maybe by kind of his identity and personal history uh, to the um, to the ELN group. So there may be sort of more common ground to try to find an agreement. Um, so that's gonna be really interesting to watch over the over the coming years. We could be seeing another uh, peace process in Colombia before long.
1: Great, thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes,
0: and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.